You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. And I say the word language because it, it is, it's not just the, the form of the product, but it's the the way that you talk about it and the branding and the and the values that are instilled in in everything from the company to the the staff and the ethos within that company and the product that they make and the way that they produce it and the way that they advertise it and and also the way that they treat that product throughout the whole of the product's life. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and that was Joe Barnard, founder of the design agency Marama, my guest on the show today. I'm going to be telling you all about Joe and how she came to be on the podcast in a moment. But first, I think I owe you an apology. We're a couple of days late with this episode coming out, but don't worry, we'll be going back to the usual fortnightly schedule from this point forward. As you might be able to hear, it's a fine spring day where I'm recording this up on what passes for a hill in Norfolk overlooking the sea. And there's a method to this madness. We have a new mix event coming up, which is going to be a dinner combined with a walk. And appropriately, the theme for this dinner and walk is going to be thinking about journeys, specifically how you can map user journeys as part of a user-centered design process. So I've been thinking a little bit about what that all means, and in particular the link between the concept of journeys and creativity and how that links into the stories that people tell about their lives and how important that is in the overall process of user-centered design. So if you stick around until the end of the interview with Joe, I'll be back at the end of the show with a few more details about that and how you can get involved with that event. So Joe Barnard is a graduate of Brunel University and that's actually how we met. I've had a a long-running association with Brunel in a few different ways as a guest lecturer organizing a scholarship program, a work experience program for their students over a number of years in association with our MEX conference and Joe was someone who got involved with that program so I got to meet her when she was an undergraduate at Brunel and she's done a couple of very bold things. Firstly, to set up her own design agency at a stage in her career when not many designers choose to do it that early on. And secondly, in the work that she's done with that agency, which I've seen developing over the years now, she's taken a number of brave choices to do some speculative internal design projects. And there's one in particular which really caught my attention, which we talk about in the interview. And that is this project to develop three concept designs for new types of smart mobile device. And they've all been inspired by that sense of changing the relationship that users have with their smart mobile devices. Now, what I'd suggest is go and take a look at the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And I'll put a link in there to these concept designs. Have a look at them before you listen to the interview because I think it will make the whole conversation make a lot more sense. There's some wonderful visuals and Joe and Marama have done a great job of explaining the story behind these concepts and how they relate to users' lives. So go and take a look and see what you think. 
So let's get into the discussion with Joe and I'll be back at the end to tell you a little bit more about what's been going on in the MEX community. Here we go. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to join me this morning. Um, there's one thing I've got to ask you before we get started, and I've been wondering about it ever since I saw what you were doing with setting up your agency. Marama. Yes. Where does the name come from? <laughs> um, in, inevitably, the first question anyone ever asks. Um, the name is a randomly generated word that had a free domain. Um, and so when we were poor and starting out, um, that was our criteria, that it, it we could, I mean, easily searchable. Uh, no one else has called that. And uh, that that's the story, I'm afraid. Not quite so romantic as um, maybe you'd thought. And how have you come to feel about it over the years? I mean, it's, what, four years now since you, you founded the agency? Yeah, almost four years. Um, I It's a funny one. Sometimes I think it's awful. Um, but most of the time, I it I mean, it's like I'm. My name's Joe, and I don't think about the name Joe. Um, and Marama is Marama, and I just—it's just Marama. I mean, I don't really. I'm glad that it's called that because I don't have a strong opinion either way. And most people don't don't think about it too much. I think it's got a certain ring to it. You know, I guess there are those words which just sort of sound right for some reason. Yeah, it's that whole theory, I think, about words like cellar door, I think, is supposed to be um, the most kind of naturally pleasant sounding thing for people to say in the English language. And strangely, yeah. marama, although it's a very different sound, almost falls into that category for me. Like, it, it just seems to, to work. So I guess a, a random lucky chance. Well, yeah, I mean, we went through a, a lot of a lot of words. I think we probably had about a short list of 200 to start with, and, and we just kept saying them over and over again. And it starts with a strong letter, and it looks nice because it's all all the letters are the same height. So there were there was some thinking that went into it, obviously. Luckily, not many people pronounce it wrong, although some people get the R's and the M's mixed up and do two M's and one R. But uh, nothing that a Google AdWords can't sort out um, and then allow us still to come up at the top of the search engine. So. Ah, yes. See, this is the designer's eye, which I'd missed in this, but I am now looking at your actual logo type and you're right. All those letters are indeed the same height. You see, this is the, the eye that I miss with these things, which obviously some yeah. of your design background, they, you've spotted that straight away. Yeah. And, and the M looks nice on its own as well. So we've used the M with a dot after it for like social media. And uh, so we, 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 I mean, we trialed it out, but the font, the, it's a Montserrat font and we've had the same, yeah, this has been the same since we started. And that's the one thing I, I haven't changed on. Some of the designers on the team have tried to encourage a, a, a kind of refresh on that. And um, I'm like, no, no, that's staying. Everything else can change. But the the, the font, the typeface, the, the logo and the word Marama is, is there to stay. So before the name, what about the ambition to do this? I mean, it was 2015 when you started Marama, but had the ambition to build your own agency been brewing for a while? Yeah, I think so. No, I know so. Uh, I, I interned in a design consultancy in London in 2012, I think it was, and um, and I really enjoyed it. I learned I learned loads, uh, but I also learned that I didn't really want to work for anybody else. Uh, not I think it was probably a mixture of naivety and ego that made me feel that I was 
I could do that and uh, I was good enough to be to be making to be doing design projects all by myself and so in my final year I uh, at university um, I told everybody that I was going to be a freelance designer and uh, the weirdest thing about doing something like that is that inevitably that's what happens because people believe that that's what you are and they'll tell people um, they'll spread that kind of word for you so I got my first jobs uh, through contacts uh, at university both my tutors and most peers and and they when someone had asked them oh do you know any freelancers they had they had said oh yeah joe's a freelance designer until that point obviously i i hadn't actually done any freelance work at all but not that i'm a believer of fake it till you make it but to some extent you do have to kind of create your own image and create and create your own future so uh, that I started off as a freelancer and I think it was a natural progression to then want to work with other people again, but in a kind of way that I, I could curate almost. And so Morama was um, the, the child of, of myself and a, and a, a fellow student at, at Brunel. Um, we'd, we'd worked together whilst we were at university and we knew that we, we worked well. Um, we came at things from very different ways, but we worked very well together. And, and so we, yeah, we started Morama uh, about, uh, 18 months or no less than 18 months 12 months after leaving university so thinking back to the course at brunel which i guess must have been when you and i met as well through the the way max and, and brunel have been working together for a, a few years now when you think back to that course how did it prepare you for that thought that you want to go down the route of being a designer i guess for yourself in a freelance capacity or then to go on and to, to build an agency versus the route of going to work for others um Brunel's actually it runs quite a good course in that it's it does a lot with industry um I think it's uniquely positioned in kind of the west of London that it's there's quite a lot of businesses around it that are that it can reach out to and so a lot of the a lot of the projects are run alongside um or run with with companies so and they'll and they will send representatives into the university to to look at our work, to give us feedback, we get an opportunity to pitch to um, you know clients in inverted commas and uh, and actually kind of understand that process uh, of working not just on a project set to you by a teacher, but but on a project that is um, where there's an opportunity, you know, a real opportunity that this could be taken forward by an actual company and you know, could end up on the market. And so you. Th- you, you have to think about things in a slightly different way. You have to really imagine designing for a particular brand, for a particular audience, and then pitching that idea to, to people, taking on the, on board their feedback and, and doing those design iterations and, and working very much on a kind of real life design process. And I think that, that, so, although at the time you never really, you didn't really think about it too much, it, it definitely helped prepare you for that kind of real world scenario and being able to confidently talk about your, your designs. Because I think that that's the biggest challenge is that designers some, some are all too often amazing at producing the design work, but terrible at communicating it. That's an interesting nuance, which I don't know if it's unique to Brunel, but it was certainly something which always has impressed me over the years of working with Brunel in, in partnership around the stuff we've done with our, our MEX conference. And I guess over the years, we've probably had sort of a hundred plus now designers that have come from Brunel, usually in their final year to do um, uh, some form of work experience through the, the MEX conference. And almost always, I, I was kind of struck by that sense that there is that really wide awareness of the role of the 
design work that they're doing relative to a much larger context of the kind of project that it's sitting in or the industry context that it's sitting in. And, you know, that always quite impressed me about the way Brunel prepares its designers for going out into their careers. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I don't think that, you know, Brunel would, uh, the Brunel designers are necessarily produce the most beautiful work or the or the do the best sketch work or you know know how to make the best model making but I think that they have we, we all left with a really clear understanding of why we were doing the design work and how how that would affect people in, in the kind of wider setting obviously designers leave university and they, and they want to change the world and they want to make people's lives better and and then suddenly they realize that it actually it's not it doesn't really work like that I mean, it, it's, it is about brand and it is about business and it is about creating products that's going to get on the shelves and sell and make, make a company money. But if you, it's, you know, we all leave with a, a feeling of wanting to do something a little bit better, but knowing how to communicate that is really, really helpful in, in making those, those changes. So let's talk a little bit about some of that work. Because uh, one way or another, I've been sort of seeing from afar some of the projects that you've been working on since you founded Marama. And one in particular recently really caught my attention around these concepts, designs you've done for new smartphones. Now, I'm curious about that and where the initial impetus came from to do something around it. Because, you know, I guess it's a, a fairly mature product category these days yeah. and the the scope to do something novel is probably pretty tricky and yet you've done something here which clearly has caught my attention and I suspect will catch the attention of others once they they take a look at what you've been working on here but where did that thought start for you so about 18 months ago we we were actually approached by a, a, a company looking to move into that mobile tech space and we were really fortunate enough to have uh, to be able to run a kind of research project in into that into that space and look at how could we innovate in su- such a saturated market where there are so many limitations both on the, kind of the user demands but also on the uh, the technology and the manufacturing process as well and and we so yeah we got to we got the chance to run um, the research and come up with some ideas and and work very closely with with the client at that time then. They got offered like an amazing opportunity that took them in a slightly different direction. And the work then was kind of parked for like six months. Inevitably, with any design agency, the workflow kind of, there's ebbs and flows. And, and when when it starts to ebb around the client work, we immediately jump into, okay, let's do some really fun stuff internally. And, and we picked up that project again and and, and took the, th- the thinking and the research and brought it out into these concepts. Um, and so the... I think the thing that was really interesting for us is that we we're industrial designers. We we design physical products. Um, we we obviously use and interact with with software daily, hourly. Uh, probably couldn't go ten minutes without looking at my phone or my screen or some screen or or another most most days. But um, but yeah, we're we're very much into the physical form and aesthetic of products and how how we physically interact with them and so looking at that looking at the phones it was about how can we influence the user's behavior through product design through physical product design and uh, so I think that that's allowed us then just because of our area of expertise it allowed us to think about these things not just as a piece of software um, or a kind of a screen that is just a gateway into software and the rest of it doesn't matter too much because it it does matter and even the smallest tweak and change 
to the the form of a, of a product that you interact with so much can have can have a huge influence in the way that we and we we we, um, we interact with it. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the concepts. There are three of them, and I'm thinking in particular at the moment about the one which you describe as a quick escape. So the physical form here, to my eyes, is defined by the way in which you've angled the back of the product. Now, yeah. what's the reason for, for doing that? And how does that link to how the product functions? So the it's almost like the back of the phone is like a seesaw. And um, and so it's ever so slightly angled. That It keeps the phone ever so slightly angled away from you most of the time. And uh, in that position, the, it, the phone is basically quiet. It doesn't distract you with notifications. Um, the screen doesn't pop up uh, with, with anything, uh, messages or anything. And... Uh, in order to actually access that information, you have to pull it. And by that, to, to be able to do that, you have to physically push the, the, the base of the phone down, therefore kind of tipping the phone forward slightly. Uh, and, and in the process, the information will then appear and you can see if that message came through or you have a new email or whatever. Obviously, as soon as you let go, um, the phone will tip back slightly away from you again and the phone immediately goes back to its kind of quiet mode. And the the thought behind that is is just is just that, that all of our notifications so often are just push. I mean, they're called push notifications for a reason. So they're just pushed at you. You don't really have a choice. You're sat in a a meeting. We're so prone now to carrying our phones into into meetings, into um, social um, meetups with with friends and and family and stuff, and putting our phone on the table that we we it only only is it when it, it flashes up that you you kind of have this kind of flash of guilt that's just like oh um yeah let me put that away but you're already distracted uh, and so actually always having that physical kind of push um, sorry physical pull to get that information then um it just kind of takes that away and it's a small little change i mean it actually results in i think quite a beautiful aesthetic in that it has this lovely kind of tapered look to it but um but the the main reason behind it is yeah it's just that ever so slight angle away and just just kind of says you know I'm not bothering you until you need me. Yeah, you see this is interesting to me because it's you're right it's it's a relatively subtle change to the relationship between user and phone and yet I think probably has some quite significant consequences. Just that notion that you are changing the dynamic from being about one of push to being one of pull really could transform the way people relate to their devices. And I think the intriguing part for me about this is that while technically that's possible for most people to achieve on the phones that they have in their pockets currently, the reality is that very few people do it because there is a complexity to configuring that, usually through software on the device, to achieve that kind of relationship. Whereas this perhaps is where that beauty of industrial design and being able to encapsulate that in a physical movement comes in because you've reduced that all down to a simple gesture. You know, that that seesaw effect of being able to just tilt when you want to interact with the phone and then that it defaults to going back to being quiet afterwards. You know, that that's pretty significant. But how much attention did you pay to uh, the actual nuance of that movement itself. I'm guessing here from an industrial design perspective, there are probably some quite complex angles involved in making that tilt feel right, in making that feel like a compelling gesture. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, we've, we've made a lot of models, but um, 
the to be honest as i say these are kind of con and then still in their kind of concept stage so we took the luxury of of coming at it from a more of an athletic point of view um and rather than thinking too much about exactly where that position is as we would move forwards if we were to take this uh, further forwards it would be you know a huge exploration in itself how does that feel what's the right balance do you want it to almost just be kind of on the tip of, of tipping towards you so that it's super super it feels really easy to do but that it always goes back and kind of sits back um facing away from you so it would be an absolute pleasure to take that forwards and to work on all those nuances so i mean if there's anybody who wants to take that forwards with us then uh, let us know but <laughs> i think it, at this stage it it was the exploration was really about just highlighting that more can be done we have a we have an unhealthy relationship with our phones and uh, i think that it's becoming more apparent and companies are doing more about it uh, i get weekly weekly updates from apple with with my screen usage and if i've makes me feel you know worse that it's i've has been 20% more time on my phone than i did last week or vice versa and um, i think that that's great but we we can do more and it can start with physical form um we don't and and not just be about the stuff inside it because it's easy to switch off a notification uh, it's easy to switch off uh, an intervention that a company's tried to put in place but it's it's impossible to it's not quite so easy to switch off a uh, a physical factor form factor yeah i mean how um significant do you think that is the difference between being able to do this in often a single physical movement like if i look at these three designs here it seems to me that each of them has quite a a distinctive characteristic movement to it that represents a way of changing that relationship with your phone I and mean, you have a, another concept here where the notion is that you flip the phone uh, upside down you invert the, the screen and in doing so it changes it into a, a mode of reduced functionality you know these are quite elegant sort of single motion gestures how important do you think it is to encapsulate something like that in, in a physical movement as opposed to that being something which um, is in the settings in software i think it's i think it's vital that it's it's a single action obviously we learn to swipe and do something really really very quickly um with our you know with muscle memory more than anything else on, on a phone that we use all the time but the the main stuff is the only other way to do it would be to add a button and um, we did actually have a concept that was a, a, a switch. You, know, you switched from one mode to the other, but it's um, both of these things. The idea with the one where you, you kind of invert the phone is that it's almost an action of a gesture of like frustration and that you it would be suddenly recognizing a kind of I've been sat on, on scrolling on Instagram for, for 10 minutes and I was only I came on here to look up a recipe. What am I doing? And then immediately just kind of flipping the phone upside down and in, in almost in a gesture of frustration and taking that quite pleasant action. Uh, well, uh, an action of, I think, quite rele a release to, and, uh, and capturing that. And I think I think that the that that physical movement is, is such a conscious decision. And I think that that's really important is that we're trying to we're trying to make these interactions with our phone more conscious because they've become so sub like subconscious and we just do things automatically. Like as soon as you put a screen in front of somebody, they're just turned into a zombie and actually bringing back those physical interactions. Um, we can't cover it in buttons and we can't cover it in in um, 
you know other other things that voice is becoming a big thing but but there's still that lovely physical um interaction with with products that has kind of missing now i mean they've become these like slippery bits of glass that we just you know tentatively swipe and and touch and hold in front of our faces and i think that that's a shame so out of the three concepts and i'll put a link in the show notes so that listeners can go and take a look at, at each of the three do you have a personal favorite uh yeah the the the, the balance phone this the kind of seesaw one uh, is my favorite i just i wouldn't want to compromise on the aesthetic just you can't a phone has to it has a product like this it has to look beautiful and i think i think that one looks for me personally the most elegant when you were coming at a project like this to what degree do the other areas that marama has worked on inform it because there's a real diversity to the work that you've been doing i mean just of the ones that i can pull from memory i know you've worked on things around uh shaving with a, a razor that you've developed um there've been wearable products that you've you've worked on i mean do you find that there is a um, a natural spillover of things that you're learning in one project to another i think it's really fascinating how projects can influence each other um the thoughts and the research that go into material into projects can like from can really unlikely in a really unlikely way can link to something else but more than anything i think that it's just it really keeps you on your toes in that each time we approach a project is probably something we've not designed before and as such we are coming at it from like a very naive standpoint and we have to answer a lot of our own questions first but in doing so uh, we're coming at it from a point that the user so often is in that they often don't know much about the, this product or this category. And and so we're educating ourselves and then we take those learnings and we use them to educate our clients as well, our clients and our and the ultimately the user as well. So it means that a lot of our work is very, is very simple. It's very stripped back, uh, not because we don't have those insights, but because we have gone out of our way to find them, as many of them as possible. But we get a chance to pick and choose because we've not, we've not been kind of, uh, we've not been we're not adjusted to that to the designing one particular type of product um i think that agencies who do specialize i think that they have you know their experience means that they 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 know not to take risks in certain areas they they know what immediately what materials best and what's what um form factors the best and what manufacturing process is best for minimizing costs minimizing risks but then the the risk is that you get complacent and that you don't push yourselves because you've got such a, a pool of knowledge and and, and kind of uh, design thinking already that you don't you don't challenge yourself to think outside of it. Um, so I think that just doing by doing lots of different things, it keeps us um, it keeps our minds broad and open to to new ideas and, and new thinking. Now I know you've done a fair bit of work for I guess what would be classified as, as startup companies. Does that journey change depending on whether or not, you know, it is a company which is very much in the startup phase versus a more established client? For us, it doesn't. Uh, our process is something we've worked on for for the you know, three years and we're really, we're really proud of the way that we work. It's very, uh, very much about validation. It's very much about getting your ideas in front of users as soon as possible and getting feedback directly from that consumer and also working very closely with our clients. More and more, what we found is more and more established companies are looking for that. They're, you know, they're starting up little skunk works within their dinosaur um, companies and uh, that can work fast, can work lean, can work in that kind of really startup-y, energetic way. And so they're the people that we love working with. And I think that, that when you work with a consultant, with a, uh, an established company that 
isn't used to working in that way it, it it's very frustrating because design and creativity is about it's about energy and it's about passion and if that's hindered by rounds and rounds and rounds of like um legal and business and and contracts and and uh, sign-offs then everything just starts to kind of stall to a bit of a halt so we love working with startups because it's their baby it's their passion and and they they have that pride and ownership over it and so and we get to work really closely with them and go on that journey together and if there isn't somebody like that involved in the project it's really difficult um, but luckily a lot of the bigger uh, bigger companies are starting to recognize that new new design and innovation can only really happen when you put a de- designated passionate little team together and so um yeah we're seeing more and more of that which is which is great yeah that, that's interesting I, mean, I suppose in many ways uh, what you're describing is is not so much a chronological point within a company or a client's lifespan that they are a startup within you know x number of years from the point that they were founded but rather a spirit of engagement and perhaps a a bravery of what they're willing to try when working with an agency. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've just we've been rethinking about our messaging um, as a company because whilst we've always worked with startups, we we actually um, we really enjoy working with the more established companies sometimes. And so, um, whilst we uh, we've always been the design agency for startups, we're now the design agency for startups and companies that want to work like startups. And so, hopefully, that will um, you know, the the it will you know allow us to build more relationships with those types of companies because i think that there's there they've got the insights already because they've got products on the market and that's that's really really vital and, and useful how does it relate to the, the business model for marama when you do want to work with early stage companies you know is that something where when you're shaping an agency you know a new agency that you've founded did you think consciously about what what structure of business you needed to be to be able to work effectively with those early stage clients or with clients who are expecting you to take a, a bit more risk with the kind of designs that you're creating? I mean, when we first started, we worked with startups because they were like-minded in that we had just started up a company. And so we knew what it felt like and we could, we could relate, uh, but also that essentially our overheads were very low and we were very passionate and energetic and were wanting to push the boundaries of, te- of creativity everywhere we could because you know we're fresh out of university and had this very kind of warped view of the potentially of the of the industry um so that it worked out really well from the beginning um and then obviously as we started to become a more established company you realize that you have staff to pay and overheads and uh, you have to start to get a structure in place so that everybody understands what the processes are and but what it's definitely um we've always tailored it towards towards that um process towards the startup kind of process and i think yeah did i answer your question i can't remember i think it does you know and i guess it's something which i've become a little more aware of in some of these conversations i've been having with people who have founded design agencies that to some degree, it seems, you know, that there needs to be a conscious alignment between structure, you know, some of the, the more sort of boring financial legal aspects of structuring an agency to be able to relate effectively to an ambition to do a certain kind of work. And depending on what stage of growth the agency is at, uh, you know, that can be easier or, or harder to implement. I, I guess when you're starting from scratch, if you're aware enough to have that ambition in mind, then um, 
it can probably be the easiest time to do it. But I'm sure, as you say, as the business starts to grow, adjustments need to be made along the way. I mean, you've been now driving Marama for coming on four years. When you think about that journey relative to what you expected going into it, have there been painful moments along the way? Oh, definitely. Uh, so I started it with um, a guy called Rob. And as I said before, and he then left the company to start up a second business a year later. So he handed me the, the keys and I took over the driving seat. And uh, we've been, and we're still very, very close. And he helps me out a lot, but from a kind of advisor, kind of advising kind of way. But uh, I've effectively ran the company uh, for two and a half of those years. And I think that um, the transition from being a, a duo to to working by myself um, in that role was really was really challenging and not something I anticipated happening, at least not so soon. Um, other than that, I think the biggest challenge has been biggest en- enjoyable challenge, uh, definitely really enjoyable, has been establishing the team and learning about how to lead a team and uh, create a a, a culture within Marama. I mean, we're still small. There's only four of us that work full time and a few freelancers that come in every now and then. But um, but even within us, I mean, we have really shared a shared vision. Um, uh, we've built that together. So I speak with them all the time about how is it going? How can we make this process better? How can we get the projects in that you want to work with? How can we make sure that you're loving every day that you come into work and that you really love the work with the, the, the stuff that we're producing? And, and and then how can that translate to being offering a better service to our clients and our startup clients? And, and, um, and that's all then, it means that we're all seeing from the same hymn sheet. And I think that that challenge of of, which is not something you can anticipate. You you don't you don't learn about starting a business at, at design school. Um, you learn about designing and helping other people perhaps start a business, but not about your own agency. And and I think that that has been a massive learning curve. And it's there has been a few mistakes along the way, but it's it's the most the thing I'm most proud of uh, for for sure is is actually creating a team of people that come into work every day and produce amazingly beautiful things, and they do it well and they do it effectively and they do it efficiently. And I guess there's that ongoing challenge as well of how as a as a practicing designer but also the person who's in the leadership role at the organization you balance your own growth as a as a designer with growing as a leader of the organization i, I could imagine that must be quite tricky to find uh, the the right balance for you as an individual in, in how you're spending your time doing those things definitely it's um it's an ongoing challenge and i often get to the end of the day feeling like all i've done is management stuff and meetings and i have to then stay late for a couple of hours and do something creative to really feel that I've you know achieved something because it's much harder to see progress I think in in the more business side of things it's a much slower process whereas sitting down and creating something or developing a, a model or doing some sketch work is is instant you can you can get so much satisfaction from that so I, I don't think I could do one without the other but I think the thing that I'm going to focus on more this year is 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 conversation is is conversations like this because it it feeds into both so i i'm um it, it inspires me creatively but it is obviously helping to spread um the word for marama and, and also allowing me to meet and talk to some really interesting people that then help with the business side of things as well so that's uh that's i think something that's 
crosses those boundaries and something I'm hoping to do more of. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there are always challenges which are unique to your particular business, but certainly something I've learned from recording these podcasts is just how many of those challenges are shared across people in design roles of all different kinds, whether they're leading a department internally uh, on the client side uh, or whether they're running an agency or a part of an agency. There are so many of these challenges which I think are very familiar to people who, who work in this field and we're just Keeping those conversations going can often be a, a good way of learning. But I'm curious sir, about the, the creative aspect that you described there, because, you know, in the conversations I've had, I've found it, it sort of manifests in slightly different ways for, for different people. I mean, do you think the nature of that creativity has changed over time for you? You know, when you think about what inspired you to want to go into design in the first place and then learning about it and starting to practice at university compared to what you're doing now in your day-to-day with Marama. Is the the creative impulse or what you get satisfaction from creatively the same or has that evolved over time? Yeah, definitely. I When I was at university, um, when I was at school, it was about making things. I loved woodwork and um the idea of just building something with my hands. And then you, when you move up to university, you learn more about the kind of the, how to finesse those designs and, and to think about it on a much bigger scale, learning about kind of consumer goods and, and mass manufacture. And, um, and also starting to, and then how that can influence branding and messaging and, and how and the, the positioning of a, of a company through the products that it sells. And then when you start to do it for clients, you have an even bigger understanding of how that how that um, design language feeds into absolutely everything. And I say the word language because it, it is, it's not just the, the form of the product, but it's the the way that you talk about it and the branding and the and the values that are instilled in in everything from the company to the the the, the staff and the ethos within that company and the product that they make and the way that they produce it and the way that they advertise it and and also the way that they treat that product throughout the whole of the product's life and and I think working with startups has is so exciting for me because they come to us with a completely blank slate and so we're not the first thing we do is, is ask them what has inspired them to start this journey. And that inspiration is the kind of real seed of, of everything that grows from it. So we, and we're the first creative agency that they might work with. And that's, that's for us is, is really, is really exciting because we get to establish their story through the product design, but also we then naturally take on a lot more of that, that wider messaging and we do branding and we do packaging and we do, um, we support them with assets for marketing, and and that I think has is what inspires me now. Is not necessarily just the making side of things, but it's the story that's told through that product and making. And that is, yeah, that that really kind of is my driving factor now. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about the relationship with startups, and as you say, that you are likely the first creative agency that they will be working with, and. Perhaps with that, there comes a, a responsibility around education too. I mean, I'm guessing often you will be the first partner that they work with to establish things like their user-centered design practice and whether or not that plays uh, or the role that user research plays in then shaping the experience of their products for, for the long term. Yeah, Is that something which you've consciously 
evolved over time, the, the way in which you try to get clients to, to understand the value of that user research and, and the way in which you help it to flow into the, the organization as it grows? The challenge, the, the unknown challenge that when we first started uh, working with startups is, is how much education we would have to, to provide the, they don't they don't they can't see the bigger picture when they first start they just like i have found a problem i'm going to make this product other people are going to have this problem and so i'm going to sell it to them and it's just like well actually you don't you need to think about things and especially for us the environmental impact of products comes into play a, a huge amount because we're putting we're create we're taking raw materials and we're making something that is at some point not going to be useful anymore and needs to go somewhere and what's that life cycle and so especially on that front we really um, focus a lot on opening their eyes to not just the 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 problems that that they by creating a product could could face but also the opportunities that they could have with with that and and how that could feed into their their values as a company and how people will perceive their product and their brand Um, so I think that and naturally um, encouraging them to get their to get their ideas out in front of users as soon as they possibly can see how people react see what people think see how people interact with their products and and, and how you can then take those those findings and improve the pros the, the process and also the product and the outcomes um, and it is it's one of my one of my goals over the you know next few years or I don't say I don't have many like long-term long-term goals but um one of them is i'd love to do more advising and and help paint that picture to startups and really um and founders and and give them those insights from the very beginning so that they can really use that to make their products better before they've even considered designing them well it's a powerful thing if you can get that right yeah both on the the sustainability front and i guess inherently bound up with that understanding the the motivations of their potential users and how that experience manifests for different people if if you can get a founding team to understand that early on the opportunity to embed that kind of thinking within the organization and then have it grow and and be very much part of that organization's identity it's a wonderful opportunity you know it's it's a big responsibility as a design agency but also a wonderful opportunity if you can get that right yeah definitely but when you say it's a big responsibility i think that it's it it doesn't feel like a responsibility if it feels like a necessity and um whenever we're designing anything um we've got um in fact i've literally just updated the website on our kind of core methodology which is uh user experience um plus design plus production process plus responsibility and so we're really thinking about all of those things in in that all those things feed into every product that we work on every project that we work on and we can't have just three of them it has to be all four so if at any point a, a client's like well, no I, I don't want to you know i don't it doesn't matter to, to ignore that round of testing i don't need to put it in front of the user we'll just go straight to to making it it's just like no no that that doesn't work like that we have to we have to analyze and think about the user experience and if they then say no we'll just use that material because the other one's a little bit too much too more expensive but but one of them is you know, significantly more sustainable than the other will say no you don't understand like a, a, a consumers should be paying a little bit more money if it means that their product that they that they're purchasing is is um significantly better for the environment and you your job then is to educate them in that because that's a responsibility that we have as people who are putting products into the world 
Uh, and so I think we've, as I say, we've only just put this up on our website, but it's been something that's underpinning a lot of our a lot of our design thinking and has done for a while. So it's really good for us to be able to finally to share that and say, no, this is how we work, and you 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 can't just pick and choose because it, this is for the benefit of the user, but also for the benefit of the of the planet that we live in. Is there a particular project out of the ones that you've done recently that for you personally you know you feel like you've really been able to embody all of those core marama values in the the output one of the lovely projects that we've been working on recently and it's it's really um kind of epitomizes some of the smaller startup work that we do where we work directly with young entrepreneurs who have an idea and they and they really really passionate um it's a guy called harry and he's a an osteopath and he had a and he knew that there was a better way to create a foam roller that would help release tension in the back, in your back, in the muscles in your back. And um, and so obviously it's quite a, a practical product, um, but we approached it from uh, obviously both form and, and user experience and aesthetics. And um, we went a step further and we looked at how we could make the, did a lot of research into the materials, how we could make sure that the foam that was used in the roller was was better the environment didn't use harsh chemicals in the in the process in the and just taking all of those things the, the packaging making sure that the packaging was as as minimal amounts as possible and that the product was therefore shipped in the smallest boxes it could be so that it was minimizing the impact on on the environment from a, from a transport perspective and just like little tiny little changes at every little step um, have have really um, have resulted in a project that we're really proud of uh, but also that it's also a project we're quite proud of because because of that story and that Harry is still an osteopath, but he has this project on the side that he has realised and, and he's now getting it into stores and seeing people loving this project product and, and he and he can see now a much bigger vision for this company that is now going to be the next chapter in his life. And I think that that's, um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just a really beautiful little story, but it has all of those considerations. Yeah, I mean, perhaps that's, one of the beauties of working with companies at that that very early stage in that you're able to see the personal impact of the work that you've done, not just on the potential customers of it, but also, as you say, on the, the, the founder themselves and what that might mean for them and, and how their, their business grows. But what might come next for Marama? I mean, this is something I always try to ask people when they come on the podcast for a chat. It, it particularly in your case, it looks like you've already had the opportunity to work on a pretty wide range of different areas. But is there a particular area which you're keen to try in the future, a, a dream project that you haven't yet had the opportunity to work on that you would really relish? I think um, whilst there's obviously a, a huge uh, inter, in, um, overlap between digital and physical now and the the, the tech space is huge and we're not massively involved in that actually but I think I'm not that bothered necessarily by getting too involved in that space but I, I am really interested in um, like automotive but uh, and AV and uh, I think that um, autonomous vehicles uh, are fasc- fascinating and how how uh, although that's so far away from necessary product design you'd imagine more like an automotive designer and uh, digital designers working together on that. I think that there's there's so much that product designers, industrial designers can bring to that mix. And I think that that would be really a really interesting space to, to be involved in, even if it is just as, you know, we offer advice or workshops or um, just sit and chat to people about it. Because I think that um, when we when we 
bringing new technology uh, and new products out like that 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 will and could potentially have huge huge impacts on people's lives it's really important that they get as you get as many insights from lots and lots of diff- different people involved in those conversations and and it's not just something that happens between the most likely candidates um, because I mean we look at look at smartphones now they've done so well that we're all just addicted to them and they're causing huge huge mental health problems so um, maybe if there was more psychologists involved in the design process of those then that we wouldn't have slightly less issues and I think that it's like as you say, just for us, getting involved in conversations where product designers aren't usually in the room is something we'd love to do next. Well, on the, the transport and the mobility front, I think there's probably good news in that it strikes me that at the moment there's a very worried bunch of people within those existing industries who realise that a wave of change is coming. And typically, if you look back through the history of new innovations and what they mean for product designers. When you have big industries that are worried about the future, that usually means that quite a lot of projects get commissioned to explore what that future might look like. So uh, it could be a, a timely moment to be looking at that area. Yes. Yeah, maybe we'll, um, when, on our next little bit of downtime, we'll put the phones to one side and start looking at autonomous vehicles. Well, I'll be excited to see it. I've been a big admirer of the projects that have come out so far from the Marama stable. So I'll be very much looking forward to <laughs> seeing um, your thoughts on, on that area. But Joe, thanks very much for taking the time to join me on the show. It's been wonderful to catch up and I wish you and the Marama team all the very best with the, the next round of projects. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll have to um, we'll have to catch up again. I think we haven't seen each other for four years or something. So um, yeah, maybe we can, uh, we can have a conversation again sometime soon. I'll look forward to it. So there we go. Joe Barnard of the design agency Marama there. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section so that you can go and check out those designs that we discussed and also all of the other things that Joe and I talked about. We always make an effort to make sure there's a really good collection of links in those show notes to make it easy to go and do some further research if any of the things that were discussed caught your attention. Now, as you might be able to hear, I'm still recording this outdoors and I've actually discovered a top tip here. You know how on these videos where some of the people who create content for things like YouTube explain their process and give you a tour of their studios and you see those complicated and expensive sound baffles you often made out of foam and mounted on tripods. Well, it turns out that a good country hedge provides much the same level of sound quality and cover. So it's a fairly breezy day here. In fact, through this hedge, I can look out over the harbour and out to the North Sea, where there's a a nice northwesterly blowing today. But sheltered here behind this hedge, hopefully we're actually getting reasonably good sound quality. So there you go. Top tip from the MEX podcast there, if you're going to do any recording outdoors. Now, I've banged on in previous episodes about this link between journeys, walking, creativity. And I'm not alone in this. Turns out there's actually a pretty wide spectrum of literature out there where people explore this idea and how that link between things like motion and the way you think has actually been something quite well documented 
and explored over the years. One of my favorite writers on this subject is a guy called Robert McFarlane. He wrote a book called The Old Ways, which has got lots of discussion of, of this theme. Um, and it's something which relates to this next event that we've got coming up in the Mex community. As listeners to this show will know, we've been organizing a series of dinners and we thought we'd try a little experiment for the next one, which is going to be on the 15th of May in London. And this time we're going to start the dinner, start the get together an hour earlier and meet at a location in London and go on an hour's group walk together before we sit down to have the dinner and it seemed appropriate that we'd have a theme which linked into that and to look at this concept of journeys the link with creativity is one aspect of that but there's also this wider consideration as well about what it means to really understand the multiple and complex journeys that users are on in their lives and how that then relates to the products that we design for them and how we design those products. So it's going to be quite a wide-ranging exploration and as with all of these mechs dinners there's no formal presentations no formalities at all we just suggest a discussion theme in advance as it's something that you might want to give some consideration to and discuss with your fellow diners over the course of the evening. So if that's something that you'd like to come along to, then just send me an email. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and I can send you an invitation with all of the details about how to get involved with that. Big thanks to everyone who, after the last episode, took the time to go and put a rating and a review up on whatever podcast service that they use to, to listen to the Mex podcast very much appreciated and some very kind comments and feedback came in from that and if that's something you'd like to do it is always greatly appreciated in particular you can go onto itunes give it a five star rating put a review up and that helps to bump the podcast up the ratings and introduce it to new people um, or better still just have a think about who specifically among your friends and your colleagues might want to have a listen send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com always great to get new people involved in the mex community that's it for this edition thanks for listening goodbye Sorry, just kidding. I forgot I've also got an important PS for you here. One of the most interesting examples of writing about this theme of journeys that I've come across recently is for an author called Craig Mod. Now, Craig is doing a very interesting experiment at the moment. He's walking a thousand kilometers across Japan and sending out a single image and a single text message each day to summarize his feelings about what that day of walking has felt like for him. And he set up a simple mechanism where the people subscribed to that feed can reply by text message. He doesn't get to see the text messages while he's on the walk, but when he returns, he'll strip all of the identifying information from those text messages and publish them unedited alongside the imagery which is going to go in the book that he writes about his walk. Now, I found this a fascinating concept for a few reasons. Firstly, he's using, I guess, one of the most basic mechanisms of publishing that we can access through mobile devices, the messaging system, which has been built into them for years. And also that it's something that he's doing blind, not really in anticipation of having a conversation or having that kind of connected experience that you have through social media these days. 
In fact, if anything, the whole purpose of the walk seems to be to disconnect for a while from that kind of ebb and flow, and that he's deliberately introducing this idea of delay into what he'll be able to hear from the people who have been following him. If that's something which catches your attention, then take a look at craigmod.com, where you can sign up to be part of that. It's all free, um, just an experiment that Craig is doing. And I'll also put a link in those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com if it's easier for you to find it through that. That's it for real this time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.